Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke uh, chapter 22. Our scripture reading uh, this morning is going to be Luke uh, 22, beginning at verse 63. And I'm going to actually read through verse 25 of chapter 23. So Luke 22, 63 through 23:25. If you are using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find these verses beginning on page 883. You may remember that in previous paragraphs, we have seen Jesus betrayed, arrested, and then brought to the house of the high priest for trial. And it is at this point that we pick up the story this morning. Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 63. This is the very word of God. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city. And for murder, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! 
A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father God, this is a sober narrative as we see our Lord on trial. We pray this morning for your grace that we might set our eyes upon Jesus and see in him the love that led him to the cross. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you know that I spent the last week of my vacation in New York City. Not necessarily the first place I would want to go on vacation, but uh, I was glad that I was able to go. And one of my favorite stops as we toured the city was the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Because there I had the opportunity not just to walk through halls with paintings on the walls, but to, to stop and to look and to behold some of the greatest works of art produced throughout human history had the opportunity to stand before some of Rembrandt's paintings and just look, to behold, to, to gaze upon the wonder of what he had created with oils on canvas. In a sense, that's what I want us to do this morning. I want us not to just walk by, but I want us to behold. I want us Gaze. The author of Hebrews says that if we would run well the race that has been set before us, then we must set our eyes upon Jesus. Not a passing glance, but we must behold him. We must behold the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We're going to behold him this morning. We're going to behold him as we see him on trial before Pilate and then before Herod. We're going to behold him. And what I want us to see this morning is the love with which he went to the cross. We see this in, in four things in particular. And the first thing I want us to see is simply Jesus' claim, the claim that, that caused him to, to come under the, the enmity of the Jewish leaders. We see this in verses 66 through 71. In verse 66, we are told that, that Jesus' Jewish trial begins with the assembly of the chief priests and the scribes when day came. So at daybreak, immediately after dawn, all the Jewish authorities gather together. Now that might seem strange because we know from the other Gospels that the religious authorities had in fact been interrogating Jesus all night. But they were rule followers and a trial could not technically be conducted at night. And so at daybreak, they all gather to make their verdict official. And they do this first by just asking Jesus to state for the record his claim. If you are the Christ, tell us, they say. 
At first, it seems that Jesus isn't willing to play along. Instead, he actually rebukes his accusers. He, he knows that they are not interested in, in the truth. They aren't interested in really weighing the evidence. And so he says to them, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But having rebuked them for their treachery, he then goes on to give them more than they could have possibly hoped for. For he says to them, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And when the Jewish authorities hear this, they immediately understand what Jesus is claiming. They, they immediately understand what he is saying about himself. And they all cry out together, are you the Son of God then? You see, they understood that, that by claiming that he would be seated at the right hand of God, he was claiming to be equal with God. He was, he was claiming to be God's very son. And so they, they say he is blaspheming. Especially when Jesus does not only not deny, but actually affirms their claim. He says to them, you say that I am. Well, that's a strange sounding answer in English. It's even a strange sounding answer in the original Greek, but it, but it clearly means something like, what you have said is true. Yes, I am who you say that I am. Certainly that's what the authorities heard, because they say to one another, what further testimony do we need? Jesus has claimed to be the very Son of God. He has blasphemed by making himself Equal with Yahweh, the one true God, according to Jewish law, then he deserves to die. But of course, Jesus' words are only blasphemy if they're false. Jesus is only blaspheming if he is not the Son of God. He is only blaspheming if he is saying something false about himself. If he is, in fact, the Son of God, if he is who he claims to be, it is not him who is the blasphemer, but the authorities who stand before him. If he is who he says he is, then it is the authorities who deserve to die. And so at this point, Luke is, is setting before us a decision. He is, he is giving us a, a choice to make. Who will we regard Jesus to be is he the Christ is he the eternal son of God or is he a blasphemer what I want you to see this morning is that those really are the only two options C.S. Lewis once said that Jesus is either the Lord or he is a lunatic or he is a liar Yes, he, he could be the Lord, but if he is not the Lord, then he is either a lunatic who, who thinks he is the Son of God, or he is a liar who knows he's not, but is trying to deceive people for his own purposes. He can't be simply a, a human teacher with, with some nice things to say about how to live life in this world. That option, Lewis says, is simply not open to us. And so we must decide. Who is this one who stands before the Jewish authorities? Is he the Lord? Is he the eternal Son of God? Or is he 
a liar, a blasphemer, one deserving of death. What will it be? That's the question that that stands before us. And obviously the entire Gospel of Luke has been written so that we would see Jesus for who he is. From from the very beginnings and the the stories of his virgin birth announced by angels to the the story of his battle with with Satan in the the wilderness following his his baptism. To the story of his healings and of his his miracles and of his exorcisms to the, the accounts of his teaching with authority. All the way through, Luke has been showing us that, yes, Jesus is indeed who he claims to be. He is God incarnate, the eternal Son of God, come to save their people from their sins. And so the question before us this morning is this, will we receive him for who he is? Or will we, with the priests and the scribes, reject him? Not because the evidence isn't there but because we don't like the implications of the conclusion it draws us to. Will we acknowledge him as Lord? If you are still debating that question this morning, I I come before you humbly saying, ask God for the humility to receive Jesus for who he is. And if you are already his disciple, then I pray that you would ask God to stand firm in that faith that you might continue to acknowledge Him day after day to be the Lord, the eternal Son of God. But it's not just that we have to receive Jesus as Lord. It's not just that, that the evidence demands it. What I want you to see this morning is that receiving Him as Lord is actually the foundation of the good news. It's the foundation of the gospel because the one who is the eternal Son of God is the one who came in love, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as the ransom for many. We, we see this in what follows in the text. We, we see it first in, in Jesus' remarkable forbearance. We actually see this in the previous paragraph, verses 63 through 65. Look there with me. We're told that the men who were holding Jesus in custody were, were mocking him even as they beat him. They were, they were treating him shamefully, slapping him, hitting him in the face, even spitting upon him, the other Gospels tell us, and then demanding that he prophesy and tell them, who hits you? We see Jesus' forbearance in his non-response. He simply does not respond to their provocations. In his first letter, Peter will write with amazement, when he was reviled, He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Not only does Jesus submit to their abuse, but he doesn't even revile them. He he, he doesn't threaten them. He doesn't warn them that one day they will get what's coming to them. He doesn't warn them that one day he will get even with them. On the contrary, we're told elsewhere that he actually prays for them. He prays to the Father that he would forgive them. This is almost beyond our our comprehension. And and all the more when we remember who Jesus is. We've, We've just seen here is one who is the eternal Son of God. He is the maker of heaven and earth. He is the Lord who who commands the wind and the waves. He is the Lord whom even the demons must obey. 
He is the Lord God Almighty. And yet he submits to his captors. Sometimes we submit to abuse because there's nothing we can do about it. And we, we fear that resisting might just make things worse. That is clearly not the case here. Jesus does not lack power. He is the one who sustains the universe by the word of his power. With, with a simple word, his enemies would be undone. And yet he speaks no such word. He submits to their abuse. Don't miss the significance of this. There's a, there's a scene in one of the Superman movies where, where Superman has been taken into custody by the U.S. Army. And as they are walking him through their facility, Lois Lane comes to meet him and he, he sees him there in handcuffs. Now knowing the full measure of his strength, she's a little confused about why he would be in mere handcuffs. But she, he looks at her and just says, these make them more comfortable. It's clear to all watching the movie that, that Superman's incarceration is voluntary. He has the power, but he has chosen not to exercise it. How much more must we see Jesus' submission, not only to the authorities' custody, but to their cruel and unjust abuse as voluntary? Jesus is not overpowered. He is not overruled, but he gives himself to be abused. This is his forbearance. The question is why? Why would, would Jesus submit to their abuse in this way? And the answer is clear, I think. Jesus was willing to submit to their abuse because he loves his sheep. And he is willing to suffer for their salvation. In fact, he's, he's willing not only to suffer the insults and the injuries of men, but as we saw a few weeks ago, he is willing to drink to the dregs the cup of his father's wrath. That's the cup that he mentions in the garden. That's the cup that he asked to be taken from him, if at all possible. That's the cup that ultimately he was willing to drink for sinners like you and me. He submitted not only to the abuse of men, but even to his father's wrath. Why? Because he loved us. He loved those who had been given to him by his Father. And he was willing to suffer that they might live. This is one of those truths that, that we know, but that we need to return to again and again and again. I know, for me at least, it's, it's very easy to begin thinking that God must be tired of me. It's very easy for me to think that he, that he must be fed up. That he must be done again and again. Day after day I fall short of his glory and break his commandments. I, I lose my temper and rash anger seek to harm rather than to, to bless my neighbor. I, I indulge the passions of my flesh and, and cling to my cherished sins instead of renouncing them and, and putting them off. In pride, I put my own interest ahead of all others, demanding my own way. Again and again, the very things I have resolved not to do, I do. And the things I have resolved to do, these I leave undone. 
And when the Holy Spirit graciously allows me to see my sin for what it is and in all of its filth and depravity, it is hard for me to believe that God could possibly still love me. That he could possibly love me as I am. I wonder if you've been there. I wonder if you've had those feelings. I suspect that you have. You know your own heart better than anyone. You, you see your own sins and you wonder, could God truly love me? In such moments, we must set our eyes on Jesus. We must see him mocked and beaten and spit upon and, and blasphemed. And we must see him forbear to respond in kind. We must see him refuse to revile or, or threaten his abusers. We must see him submit, for he submits in love. He submits because of his love for those whom the Father has given him. He submits that we might be saved. Think of what we heard even this morning in the call to worship. God has demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet Sinners, Christ died for us. He does not love your sin. He hates it more perfectly than you do. But he loves you. He loves those who, who have been given to him by the Father. And he is willing to suffer for their sake. And this is all the more amazing when you consider that he, that he suffers as one who is perfectly innocent. This is the next thing I want you to see in this, this passage we see it most clearly in the first half of, of chapter 23 where we're told that the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. That is, the, the Jewish authorities now bring Jesus before Pilate. And at first glance, this, this seems strange to us. The Jewish authorities have already announced their, their verdict. They've already said that, that he deserves to die. But you have to understand that under Roman law, they have no authority to kill him. Rome must do that. And so they bring him before Pilate, the, the one who is the possessor of Rome's authority in that region. And they present before him charges. It's, it's why they frame the charges the way they do. Notice what they say. We, we found this man leading, misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a, a king. And so they don't bring him before Pilate claiming that he is a blasphemer, but they claim that he is an insurrectionist of sorts, that, that he is one who is misleading the people and telling them not to pay taxes and, and claiming to be a king. These are charges that they believe Rome might care about. These are charges that they hope will compel Pilate to put him to death. But of course they're not true. <laughs> First, Jesus never forbid anyone to pay taxes, but on the contrary, said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And importantly, he never claimed to be Caesar's rival. Rather, he, he claimed to be Caesar's king. He claimed to be the king of, of kings. He claimed that Caesar ruled at his bequest. That might have been mildly annoying to uh, Rome, they, they might have uh, laughed or, or scoffed at such sentiments, but given the fact that he, he clearly acknowledged Caesar's right to rule, uh, an acknowledgement that was later articulated by both Peter and Paul when they commanded believers to obey the civil authorities, given, given that he did not set himself up as a, as a rival to Caesar, I doubt it would have promoted too much of a reaction. Certainly didn't seem to bother Pilate. Notice what he says. 
He says, even after hearing that he is indeed Christ a king, he, he says, I find no guilt in this man. Later he will say it again, I, I, I see nothing in this man worthy of, of death. But the people are insistent. They, they say, yes, yes, he deserves to die. And, and he's been misleading people all the way from Galilee to this place. When Pilate hears this, he, he thinks he's found a way out. He, he says, is this man a Galilean? Well, then send him to Herod, for, for Herod is responsible for that region. But as Jesus comes before Herod, even Herod finds nothing wrong with this man. He hopes to see a miracle. He gets annoyed when, when Jesus doesn't comply. But he sends him ultimately back to Pilate saying, I find no guilt in this man. And so again and again, Pilate comes before the, the Jewish authorities and says, this man has done nothing deserving of death. He, he has done nothing of what you have charged him with. He is not guilty. And that is the repeated refrain that Luke wants us to hear. This man is innocent. And yet the people continue to cry out, crucify, crucify him. Crucify him. It's released to us instead Barabbas, a, a murderer and an insurrectionist. But what Luke wants us to see is that, yes, in, in amazing forbearance, Jesus submitted to the, to the authorities. And in amazing forbearance, he allowed himself to be crucified. But he was not submitting to what he deserved. But rather, he was taking what he in no way deserved. In fact, the author of Hebrews tells us what a Roman court could never have determined. He, he tells us that Jesus was not only innocent of the charges brought before him that day, but that he was innocent of all charges, that he was like us in every way except without sin. And again, think why that matters. Think why it is so important to see Jesus as the, as the blameless one, as the innocent one, as the holy one confirms for us what we've already seen, that he suffers not for his own sins, but that he suffers for us. He stands in our place. He is our substitute. The blameless, spotless Lamb of God who takes our sins upon them and suffers their consequences in our place. Such was his love. He suffered not only for us, but he suffered in our place. And he did so knowing full well what he was going to accomplish. This is the final thing I want you to see this morning. We, we see it in Jesus' hope. Look again at verse 69. Look again at what Jesus says. He says, From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. If you're familiar with the Gospels, you, you know that when Jesus speaks of the Son of Man, he is speaking of himself. He is saying that from now on, he will be seated at the right hand of God. Think about what that means. It, it means that, that Jesus goes to the cross knowing what is about to happen. Not knowing what's going to happen in the next few days. Yes, he knows that. He, he knows he is going to suffer. He knows he is going to die. But he also knows that he will rise again victorious over sin and death. He knows that he will again ascend to the Father's right hand where he will seat, where he will take his seat next to the power of God for all eternity until he comes to, to, to claim his own. But think about why that is so 
important. Jesus was already with the Father in glory before he came to to die on the cross. Why would he go through the suffering and, and humiliation of the cross just to return to where he already was? What's different after his suffering and death? We know, do we not? It is through his suffering and death that he becomes the Son of God in power. Not the Son of God. He was always the Son of God. But through through his suffering and death and resurrection, he gains the right to forgive sinners. He gains the right to, to, to pardon their sins and to, and to establish them as citizens in his kingdom. That was the joy that was set before him. It wasn't just joy with, with the Father in glory, but it was the joy of being with the Father in glory as the Savior of sinners. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he suffered their humiliation. That's why he was willing to, to suffer for crimes he never committed. He went to the cross that he might save sinners. That he might cleanse them of their defilement. That he might remove from them the record of death that stood against them. And that he might grant to them eternal life in his kingdom. Jesus so loved sinners that he was willing to suffer and die, that he might save them. Their salvation was the joy set before him for which he endured the cross. Such is his love. And my charge to you this morning is simply, do you see it? Do you believe it? Do you know that such is his love for you. I pray that you do. For it is this love that is the very fountain of the good news. It is this love that is the very fountain of the gospel. The gospel that sets us free to live as his children and to serve in his kingdom. Therefore let us go before God and let us humbly ask that he would give us the grace to believe this gospel. For it is his love for sinners That is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we rejoice in your goodness. We thank you for your grace. And we ask, Father, that you would give us eyes to see. Father, in our weakness, we are prone to doubt. In our weakness, Father, we are are prone to see our sin as greater than your grace. Father God, I pray that you would allow us to see that indeed your grace is greater. Father, may we see your love in all of its glory, in the suffering, the death, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray.